Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stats. I'm Damien Garde, recording from Stats New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from Stats Worldwide Headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from Stats Outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, January 23rd, and here's what's on the docket this week. A new pneumonia-causing virus has spread across borders and killed at least 17 people in China. Stats' Helen Branswell joins us to break down this fast-moving story. A bunch of drug industry types decamped to snowy Switzerland for the annual gathering of billionaires in Davos. We discuss whether anything said there actually matters. And finally, the seemingly never-ending saga involving Sarepta Therapeutics and the FDA has a new twist. Our colleague Matt Herper will join us to make sense of what it all means. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We're going to start with the fast-developing story of a viral outbreak spreading through China and across the globe. Two major cities are now under lockdown as China races to contain the mysterious illness that has killed at least 17 people. Another city. So as with any time a virus spreads, there's lots of misinformation, confusion, and conjecture out there. So we invited our stat colleague Helen Branswell on the podcast to break down what remains known and unknown about the virus that originated in Wuhan, China. Helen, thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So not long before we started recording this podcast, China had expanded its quarantine to three cities, affecting a total of about 20 million people. Helen, what does this mean? (laughs) It's wild, isn't it? It's really hard to imagine how one quarantines 20 million people. But if anybody can do it, I guess that would be China. Effectively, what they're trying to do is stop spread of this virus at a time when virtually everybody in that country is traveling. This weekend is the Lunar New Year, and it's like American Thanksgiving, but on steroids. Everybody there travels to go home and celebrate the New Year with their family. And at a time when there's a new virus spreading, that could be just an enormous amplifying event. So, Helen, you've covered all of the major disease outbreaks of recent years. How big of a deal is this one in that context? It feels pretty big. You know, it's in the very early days and you have to be cautious about projecting how much of an impact this is going to have But it's moving really rapidly. You know, China is being much more forthcoming with information than it was with the SARS outbreak in 2003, for instance, and even with H5N1 uh, bird flu back in the mid-aughts. But still, you know, when an outbreak is in the early stages, information is just hard to come by. And so it's hard to assess how bad this might get. But at the current time, You know, they're reporting over 600 cases. The case count is mounting quite rapidly. Singapore announced overnight that they'd found a case and somebody who'd come to Singapore from Wuhan. You know, it it, it just seems to be moving really, really quickly. So, Helen, what do we know right now about how this virus gets transmitted? Well, we don't know a lot. What people are trying to figure out is whether or not most of the 
cases have been infected by animals or have been infected in what is known as limited human-to-human transmission. So somebody gets infected by an animal, they go home and infect somebody else in their household, or they go see a doctor and infect somebody in the waiting room of the doctor's office. Those kinds of infections don't signify that the virus has become adept at spreading from person to person. And typically what happens is, you know, you might get one or two cases and then that virus dies out. The alternative is that this virus has spread from animals to people and is now spreading nicely among people. And the WHO said yesterday they haven't seen evidence of that, but they are looking. And, you know, that will tell the tale. So the CDC disclosed the first confirmed case of the virus in the U.S. earlier this week. Will figuring out how the virus spreads affect the reaction in the United States? Um, I guess. I mean, you know, the United States has taken already pretty decisive action. They've decided to funnel all flights from Wuhan to five American airports that have uh, staffs of people who were going to meet those planes take the temperature of everybody coming off the plane, give people information so that if any of those people became sick after they got home, they could know to tell their doctor that they'd been to Wuhan and to be on the lookout for this. That might be a little bit moot now with with China blocking exit from Wuhan and and blocking flights from there. But going forward, we're going to, you know, see what happens if the virus starts spreading more broadly in China. A bunch of Other cities have reported cases. I think now 25 provinces have reported cases, but they may be just a few at this point. If the virus gets seeded into a place like Beijing or Shanghai, then you have to wonder about, you know, what other actions might be taken to try to slow down spread of the virus or contain it in China, if that's possible. So, Helen, you've written about how the Wuhan outbreak shares some key similarities with the SARS crisis of 2003. What have authorities learned from that experience and other outbreak experiences that might help combat this one? Well, I mean, one of the things that was learned from SARS is that a virus doesn't have to spread everywhere to cause huge amounts of upheaval and disruption. During the SARS outbreak, really only under a dozen places had significant SARS outbreaks. But in those places, the impact was massive. I was working in Toronto at the time. Toronto was the only city outside of Asia that had a major outbreak. And hospitals were just paralyzed almost. I mean, people's chemotherapy treatment was put off. Everything but, you know, absolutely urgent surgery was canceled. The hospitals were effectively closed to any visitors. It was really a city on lockdown. In fact, at a point, the WHO told people not to go to Toronto unless they absolutely had to. It had a huge impact on the economy of the city. And so you don't have to have a virus spreading everywhere for this to cause quite a bit of damage. So in the days since the outbreak became news, uh, we've seen a slew of announcements from drug companies, both large and small, promising to start developing a vaccine as quickly as possible. And with those announcements, we've seen a lot of the stock prices of these companies you know, skyrocket. Sure, that's Um, what the announcements are supposed to do. That's what the announcements are supposed to do, exactly. But Helen... What's a realistic expectation for how long a vaccine project like this might take? Years. There is not going to be mass-produced vaccine for this coronavirus anytime soon. 
you know, you will see people talk confidently about the fact that a vaccine might be available within a year or 18 months. But what they're talking about there is a candidate vaccine, effectively a recipe for a vaccine. Let's use an analogy of cake. You might be able to design a recipe for a great cake in a period of time, but that doesn't mean you're going to be able to mass produce enough cake for everybody in the world to have a slice. There isn't an animal model in which to test whether, you know, an idea for a vaccine actually works. They don't even know what animal is transmitting this virus to people. So those are sort of basic building blocks of doing vaccine work. So we are, of course, still in the early days of the global response to this outbreak. Helen, what will you be watching for in the coming weeks? The pattern of spread, you know, hopefully authorities in China will get a better handle on how much of the transmission is happening between animals and people and how much of it is just straight human to human transmission. If there's a lot of the latter, you know, we have a problem. So that really is what bears watching. Also, how effective China is in slowing or stopping spread within the country. Also work to try to find out what the animal source is, because if this virus got into a whole bunch of wild game that's being sold in different parts of the country, you really want to find what that is and do something about that to stop that kind of transmission. Otherwise, any effort to control this will fail because the virus will keep coming at us from another source. Helen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Next up, we're going to talk about Davos, the extremely fancy conference happening this week in a Swiss ski resort town that draws politicians, CEOs, and other one percenters from around the globe. Biogen CEO Michelle Funatos was the sole drug industry voice, joined by the head of the NIH, the CEO of AARP, and the leader of something called Asia's leading STEM-focused media company. So, Damien, our employer sadly didn't send you to Davos to cover the panel, but you live streamed it anyway. What did they all talk about? So maybe it's my fault for having any hopes beyond this, but Davos being a place where very, very wealthy, influential people kind of want to be told that the problems of the world are tractable by the means that they understand them, which is to say flying places and talking. The panel itself was mostly people who probably have really interesting opinions, basically sticking to the script of here's the problem and, you know, we are all hammers and and here's the perceivable nail that we can use to destroy it, which is mostly forming coalitions and going to places like Davos. But the the main takeaway and what I was curious about was what Michelle Venatsos might say about aducanumab, which is the deeply controversial treatment for Alzheimer's disease that his company is soon to file for approval around the world, despite some debatable data. But that honestly didn't really come up. It was mostly just talking points from from powerful individuals. So, of course, Biogen has been in the news lately with regard to its controversial Alzheimer's drug, aducanumab, which it plans to submit for approval uh, with the FDA. Did anyone ask about aducanumab on the panel? So it came up in the context of, you know, here's a thing that could be a disease-modifying therapy, and Francis Collins of the NIH kind of paid lip service to it, but there was no deep discussion. And I think that was sort of a missed opportunity because you figure you have a representative of AARP whose members, if in fact aducanumab is approved, 
will disproportionately be the ones receiving it and thus paying for it. We don't know how much it would cost, but the fact that it will undoubtedly be not free and also doubtedly works would be something that I imagine ARP might have opinions on. And, and likewise, you know, Francis Collins, a, a celebrated scientist in his own right, with probably a pretty good understanding of biostatistics, probably has opinions about the analysis that Biogen used to conclude that aducanumab worked. And so I would love to hear his opinions on that. But, you know, as I mentioned before, a Davos panel is not really the stage for that, and, and it didn't come up. So stepping back from the Alzheimer's thing, and, and I feel like this is kind of a perennial question, why do people in pharma and biotech go to Davos? I think a big part of it is the access to power. And it's in a very different way than people go to medical meetings or an investor conference like JP Morgan. I think there's something about being able to hobnob with politicians and CEOs of you know these major global corporations that I think there is a, a thesis that there is value in getting that face-to-face -face time. Whether it's right or not is debatable. Also, what I thought was kind of interesting as sort of a pan Davos point, I remember Davos 2017, which I also didn't attend, but um, there was sort of like a meta Davos narrative of, you know, the rise of populism in the West. Donald Trump was soon to be inaugurated and, you know, other political movements in other countries. And you saw all these headlines, these kind of navel gazing considerations of like, what does something like Davos, a 1% hoedown, mean in the context of what was going on in the world at that time. And some people had some very thoughtful things to say, but now we just cut to three years later, and at least from what I could tell, it's back to, you know, wearing expensive snoods and hanging out in hot tubs and being guarded by snipers and, and just continuously being happily rich. So maybe that moment has passed. Another thing I've sort of started to notice online, particularly in some corners of bio Twitter, is that it's become sort of very in vogue to hate on Davos and the people who attend. I think it has sort of the vibe of, 30 under 30 lists, where the point of talking about it is to emphasize how much better you are than all of these people. This entire discussion is not going to help uh, convince our boss to send Damien to <laughs> Davos 2021. Still crossing my fingers, though. Regular listeners of this podcast will be well aware of the saga surrounding Sarepta Therapeutics and the FDA, which is either the low point of drug approvals or their future. So before we get into the news, here's as brief as possible a reminder of why Sarepta is such a hot topic. The 2016 approval of the company's first drug, which is a treatment for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, was controversial because it was approved on very early data. And there was a voluble debate within the FDA over whether the treatment actually worked. Now, this saga is sort of repeating itself with a new drug. Joining us to break down the news is our colleague Matt Herper, who's been following the Sarepta story for years. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. So to start out this conversation, what exactly did we learn this week? So we already knew that Sarepta's new drug, Viandis, which is a follow-up to Exondis, had been rejected in August and then after Sarepta appealed, approved in December. What we got to see now were the rejection letter and the approval letter and the internal arguments in the FDA about whether or not this medicine should be approved. Right. And so just like with the old drug Exondus, this new drug Viandus, within the FDA, there was maybe we'd call it dissension within the FDA ranks. There are certain people inside the FDA who wanted to reject Viandus, which they did. And then 
that decision was overruled by other people within the FDA uh, who felt like, you know, the drug's benefit outweighed its risks and that it should be approved. So, Matt, you wrote about these sort of dueling letters that were disclosed for the first time. What do you think this says about kind of drug approvals and the FDA in general? Well, I think from the from the very beginning, this approval was kind of an edge case. There's this whole debate over when patients are really sick, as patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy are, how fast do you get the drug on the market and how much do you insist on randomized controlled trials that show a real physical benefit? And the debate back in 2016 was between Ellis Unger, who is the director of the Office of Drug Evaluation, one of the people at the FDA, actually said that the first disruptive drug he thought was a placebo. And the argument is these drugs are being approved based on dystrophin, the protein that's missing in muscular dystrophy. And they make a very small amount of dystrophin. And so the argument is, is that enough to approve them? And there's been a push really for the past 20 years that for rare diseases, we should be lowering the bar. And this is a case where there are some people who are saying, hey, wait, whoa, this is too much. The thing that struck me most about the disclosures this week was that for the first time we sort of we got the view from inside the FDA that there was that there is anger that there there is frustration over Sarepta's uh, inability or just their delay in uh, conducting a confirmatory clinical trial for these drugs. So Matt, as you pointed out, you know these drugs were essentially approved based on biomarker data without any definitive proof that they provided an outcome or benefit for patients. And you know, Sarepta has this, that you know the first drug was approved in 2016. Here we are sitting in 2020, and we still don't know whether these drugs actually work or not. And I think what we found in at least Ellis Unger's letter uh, this week was that that's kind of angering some people in the FDA, that the company has sort of dragged its feet with these confirmatory trials. One thing that I've found fascinating about, especially this most recent disclosure, is that we often think or are told to think by the FDA that the agency considers each drug before it solely on its own merits. And having the paper trail of the Sarepta saga, it becomes very clear that there is a reputational effect. There is a knock-on effect about the prior Sarepta experience. Because while both of the drugs in question treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy, they treat different patients. So theoretically, the FDA should be looking at this new one solely based on the data that's supplied. But we understand now very well that that's not the case. And I think you know, Sarepta sort of downplays the cause and effect here. Uh, you know, when Viandis was rejected back in August... Naturally, people ask them, you know, well, does the fact that you haven't confirmed the benefit of your first drug, uh, Exondus, does that have anything to do? And I think they sort of tried to downplay that and say that it didn't really have an impact. But well, as we learned this week, it certainly did, at least, you know, from Ellis Unger's standpoint, you know, the fact that they have been dragging their feet on a confirmatory study, you know, was a factor in the decision to reject a drug. And the other point that I'll make is, is you know, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a rare disease, but we are still talking about a lot of money here. You know, Sarepta is going to do about $400 million in sales this year. That revenue estimate doubles in two years. So by 2021, they are estimated to do about almost $900 million in sales from drugs that we don't know if they actually work or not. That's a lot of money. And one thing that's different here than a lot of other cases is that because of the kind of nuts and bolts of this decision, the real uncertainty here is what amount of dystrophin do you need to have an effect? So unlike in something like cancer, where we know what tumor shrinkage means, 
There's some uncertainty about how it translates into benefit, but it's very clear there are standards for how much you shrink a tumor before getting your drug approved. Here, you're really building uncertainty upon uncertainty. And that means that as you progress from that without answering that first question, you know, you really are in some ways a little less certain about the new drug than you were about the first one. Like it compounds over time. So I feel like an underpinning of this erupted debate going back to to 2016, even 2015, is, you know, in part what we've discussed, which is whether these drugs work and what Sarept is entitled to, but also the sort of macro phenomenal thing of, does this change the fabric of the FDA? Does this change the means by which drugs are demonstrated to be effective in the United States? And so I guess my question for the panel is, does that hold water? Does it? Does it feel like the Sarepta thing was a watershed moment and this latest one might be seen as, as a continuation of it? That's really what this is about, I think, from the FDA's perspective. Both of the letters, both the rejection and the approval, are about setting things up so that this is an isolated incident and that you're not in a position where you start ending up with, well, there's this biomarker, there's this test that should provide a benefit for this drug, and therefore we have to approve it, and therefore we have to approve the next one, and pretty soon you have a systemic lowering of the bar. I think both letters were striking for the way that they were seemed to be trying to safeguard having standards of efficacy for new medicines. I would just add that if you think the Sarepta saga is crazy, wait till the FDA gets its hands on aducanumab, the Alzheimer's drug. <sighs> yes. Well, with that, Matt, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tebanalo, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what questions you have about the virus spreading in China and beyond. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And of course, if you like what we do, please do leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.